today's episode of the Health Tree Podcast for Multiple Myeloma, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom, and we'd like to thank our episode sponsor, GSK, for their support of this program. Now, you may have noticed last week we made a major announcement with a formal name change from Myeloma Crowd to Health Tree for Multiple Myeloma. We did this to converge our foundation name with the name of many of our tools, including HealthTree Cure Hub and HealthTree University, um, mostly to reduce confusion. Uh, one of the programs I'd like to share today before we get started on our show is our HealthTree Myeloma Coach Program. So if you are in need of one-on-one support, whether you're newly diagnosed or you're relapsed, we have over 190 HealthTree Myeloma Coaches who can help you either short-term or long-term. You can pick your own coach and use them for as long as you need. And um, it's a wonderful program if you need specific support, like for a stem cell transplant, or if you need um, help on a particular type of therapy, or um, financial support, or that, that type of thing. The coach program is just fantastic. We have an an annual coach summit every year with our coaches. It's coming up next week in Park City in Utah for us, and we are excited to be meeting with the coaches. We provide them with additional education, and we um, invite them to see see how best we can support you. Um, So now on to our show. And Dr. Richardson, if you could press 1 on your keypad um, so I can identify you as the, the guest, that would be fantastic. Now, in myeloma, we know that things are moving very quickly. Uh, we have with us today Dr. Paul Richardson, who is was the key myeloma speaker at the recent ASCO conference. So ASCO is the conference that um, is covers all cancers. It's a, the, made, the, the largest oncology conference in the world, and um, we will be pro- he'll be providing us with a mid-year review of many of the key happenings in myeloma. So we have a lot to cover in today's show. Welcome, Dr. Richardson. Uh, Jenny, it's my pleasure, and thank you very much for, for inviting me to join today. And please, Jenny, we, we've known each other for a, a very nice long time, so please call me Paul. But, um, oh. <laughs> Jenny, it's lovely, it's lovely to be on your show, and uh, as always, a privilege to join you. Well, thank you so much for joining. I'm going to give a little brief introduction for you before we get started. Um, So Dr. Paul Richardson is R.J. Corman Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and the attending physician in the Division of Hematologic Oncology and the Multiple Myeloma and Bone Marrow Transplant Service at Dana-Farber. Dr. Richardson is a clinical program lead and director of clinical research for the Jerome Lipper Multiple Myeloma Center at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. He's also chairman of the Multiple Myeloma Committee for the Alliance and Alliance Foundation for Clinical Trials and the Myeloma Steering Committee member of the National Cancer Institute. He's editorial board member for publications such as Clinical Cancer Research, Journal of Clinical Oncology, American Journal of Hematology Oncology, Journal of Oncology, and many, many others. Dr. Richardson is a distinguished myeloma specialist who's a very influential figure in the new drug development approval process having led many, many large phase three clinical trials to get drug approval um, for many of the therapies like bortezomib, panabinostat, daratumumab, carfilzomib, silenexor, and many, many others. Um, Dr. Richardson received the Ernest Butler Lecture and Prize from the American Society of Hematology, or ASH, for his translational advancements and achievements in enabling clinical science in multiple myeloma. He's also recognized and appreciated by the Patient Advocacy Committee and is the recipient of the Robert A. Kyle Lifetime Achievement Award by the International Myeloma Foundation for his work that's resulted in significant advances in research, treatment, and care of myeloma patients around the world. So, Dr. Richardson, we're so happy to have you back on the program. We've done this before with you, this mid-year review, and um, you have so, there's so much going on. Um, so why don't we get started uh, with what you led with um, at the ASCO conference, which was this determination trial. Yeah, no, it's, it's my pleasure, Jenny, and thank you for that very kind introduction. I think the, the bottom line is I'm blessed to work with a fabulous team at Dana-Farber, and we have a uniquely uh, strong uh, translational program, which takes the best ideas from the laboratory 
and brings them to the bedside for our patients. And that's been an amazing journey over the last uh, 20, 20 plus years. And the momentum, in fact, I would argue, has increased, uh, recognizing that we, we still face enormous challenges with myeloma. And whilst there's great hope, uh, I think it's very fair to listeners and in particular to patients and caregivers to to appreciate that, and as you know, Jenny, we've we've come a long way, but we've got a long way still to go, and particularly for high-risk myeloma, um, the challenges are very real, uh, and we've seen amazing progress with standard risk disease, but high-risk disease remains an area that I, I think is an un, is sort of arguably an unmet medical need um, still. Having said that, progress in, in high-risk disease has, has been made, so I think one of the most interesting things about the therapeutic landscape is how can we adapt treatments to best meet the challenge of high-risk disease and at the same time um, adapt treatment to to best suit standard-risk patients or patients with lower-risk issues, recognizing that because myeloma remains, unfortunately at the moment at least, uh, an incurable disease, um, you know, obviously calling something low-risk and high-risk to my mind is a little bit of an oxymoron, but nonetheless, I think it is fair to say high-risk versus lower-risk as we try to think about tailoring therapy. So, so essentially mm-hmm. where we stand with determination is that this study started actually over, my goodness, the concepts behind it started in 2008. So that's almost 14 years ago as we developed RVD, and we felt that RVD, which is lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone, was at that time our best platform uh, in the upfront setting where we got 100% response rates, 50% complete response rates, and we were really encouraged by what we saw. And when we combined it with transplantation, the response rates were actually, interesting enough, not particularly different. But having said that, there was a clue that progression-free survival for transplant might be um, that much more impressive um, than we perhaps had seen from just the RVD alone. And the other key question that was front, middle, and center of our minds, Jenny, um, was that um, maintenance um, was a burning question with um, the role of lenalidomide looking to us like it should continue until uh, either it ran out of benefit or it became less tolerable, um, whereas our European partners were being forced primarily by their regulators to limit lenalidomide to just one or two years at most. So the background to the study is really, you know, RVD with or without transplant with lenalidomide maintenance being at that time a, a, a kind of new world to explore. And we partnered with our, our French colleagues and we launched the studies in 2010. Um, and it was amazing to have to report the data 12 years later because on the one hand that spoke to the very success of the studies, uh, or particularly our study, the, the French study read out significantly earlier, not least of which because the maintenance was just one year, ours was not. But also that the progress in the field, Jenny, that, you know, I remember 10, 15 years ago, we reported on the VISTA trial within a few years of it starting. You know, within three to five years, we reported on VISTA, uh, which was VMP, if, uh, just for people's uh, historical context. And that was in newly diagnosed patients. Now, you know, we, we're in a newly diagnosed younger population. We have to wait 12 years before we report data. And that's a real sign in itself of, of success, Jenny. Um, so that was the background to the study. Yeah, yeah. But it no, takes and, that and long think, for readout. <laughs> well, well ex- exactly. And I, I think that's the good news from the work, and amongst many other things. Um, the other thing I wanted to share with you, Jenny, is that this was a study conducted across um, 56 centers in the United States. Um, I want to especially acknowledge um, the contribution of all of those centers and, and the research nursing teams and clinical research coordination teams at each center, because those are really the folks who are the engine rooms, if you will, of successful research. And in order to do that, we had partnered with um, our pharma partners who provided us with free medicine, which was incredibly important, um, and also the resources to get the job done. We had a great clinical research organization. We conducted no less than 28,000 monitored visits, and we continue to do that to provide really high-quality data quality to to be sure that the data we report to you, Jenny, are accurate. And we ran this all from Dana-Farber with the support of um, the wonderful clinical trials network, the CTN, who supported the trial, and also the endorsement and support of the so-called alliance, which is 
as you mentioned, he was so kind of actually finished my ten-year term as the chair there, and it, uh, and and just just mm. just finished it. And in the course of um, the study, we were got the endorsement of the alliance, which was critical. And at the same time, I want to especially acknowledge my colleagues on the Myeloma Committee at the alliance, who also were so supportive. So, with lots of support from various centres, including the NCI, um, Pharma. Um, and of course, we also, and this is a really nice story, Jenny, we had philanthropic support. We, we could not have done the trial without the support of the R.J. Corman Multiple Myeloma Research Fund. And that's, that fund in particular was central to the success of the program. And we en- enrolled 722 patients um, nationally over the course of 12 years. Uh, sorry, I apologize, over the course of eight years from 2010 to 2018. And then four years after the last patient was enrolled, um, we were able to get some readout because our steering committee had been very careful about making sure that we could only read out information when we really had full information around pre-specified statistical endpoints to report um, to the audience so, or to, 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 to the myeloma community. So, so this, is, this is the background to the trial. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. And I'm oh, sorry, go, Jane, we go, if you'd like, I can go into the results and talk to you about those. Oh, yes, I, I would, no, I would love, no, 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 I would love you to go over the results. I think that's Okay, perfect. That's and and feel free, <laughs> free, free, free for our listeners to sort of jump in with any, any comments. But one, one of the, so in terms of the patients enrolled, these patients were aged between 18 and 65. Um, we did set the cutoff at 65 because our French partners have strict rules in France that, Patients over the age of 65, it's much less easy for them to have access to autologous stem cell transplant. And just, just to remind patients of the design, and, and listeners, I should say, of the design of the trial, we looked at RVD um, followed by stem cell collection in both arms of the study. And then once uh, the arm A, as we called it, which was the RVD alone arm, then went on to get another five cycles of RVD, so a total of eight cycles of RVD, followed by LEN maintenance continuously. Um, Zometa was given throughout. And arm B, which was the transplant arm, so, you know, a nice sort of acronym there for the bone marrow transplant arm, arm B, um, they received mm-hmm. three cycles of RVD, stem cell harvest, then an autologous stem cell transplant, two cycles of RVD, and then LEN maintenance afterwards. And obviously for arm A, if their disease came back, they had the option of stem cell transplant. But importantly, we didn't mandate it. You, we recommended it, but we said if you didn't, you know, for reasons your caregiver, you did not want to do a transplant. As, at some point, if you could do it, that would be great. If you needed it, if it was appropriate. But if you couldn't or you didn't want to have it, you could obviously have other treatments as well. Now, this was an important caveat because, obviously, in the U.S., we have choices. And what we didn't want to do was straitjacket patients into forced choices. We wanted to make sure they really had choice. But at the same time, we recommended a delayed transplant for arm A if, if, if unfortunately, their treatment failed them. Um, and so that was the basic design of, of, of the study. Um, we, as I mentioned, started enrollment at the very end of 2010 and finished enrollment at the very beginning of 2018, January 2018. Um, we were blessed because we had remarkable participation across the country, um, but we got the highest number of African-American patients to participate in any myeloma study to date at t- approximately 20%. So we were very pleased to Wonderful. see that. That's huge. Yeah. And it was huge because what it, I think, was also a measure of was how patient-focused the study was, that essentially we were putting, you know, uh, uh, the convenience and, and tolerability and, and above all the free medicines, of course, were very important um, to, to provide to our patients so that uh, they, could, they could get the maximal benefit. And that also allowed, you know, uh, absolute, you know, complete access to, 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 the, to the modalities offered rather than, any kind of selection processes that might go into that. So, so a unique study in many respects. Um, what we built Can I into make the a trial. Comment? Just, oh, sorry. Just about yes. that. Just about clinical trial um, study design. I think it's really important to just highlight um, the design because having a flexible design that is attractive for patients to join is really essential. So, what you did, you provided this very open kind of structure, like you were mentioning before and it made it attractive enough for patients to join. And I think that's part of um, the strategy, I guess, in, and, and what you found in your African-American patient participation is the better study design you have, the more likely patients are to join. 
so, which seems obvious, but um, is important. And not all studies are designed like that. Well, well thank you, Jenny. And I, I would also very much acknowledge the centers because essentially we went to centers right across the U.S., um, the South, the West, the East, um, you know, the, mid, mid, the Midwest, uh, and also a big urban centers um, such as Detroit, uh, you know, and Chicago and so on. Uh, and basically, I think you're absolutely right. What we did was provide a practical, real-world um, uh, mm -hmm. therapeutic platform. Um, and, of course, the, the real benefit of um, a patient and user-friendly, and what I mean by user, I mean provider-friendly schedules, um, but also rigor. We, we did insist that patients were monitored extremely carefully for safety, uh, extremely, extremely carefully, carefully for outcome. We built important correlative science into the study, and we were very grateful to our patients for doing that and participating, where we did bone marrows to assess response, uh, presence of secondary problems from the transplant, because that's something we, we, we uncovered, which was you know, this, this issue of secondary leukemia, and at the same time looking at a very important outcome, which was so-called MRD, or min minimal residual disease. And as part of our correlative science, we also built in some very new, world, new age, I should say, um, technologies, including whole genome sequencing, to better understand patients' disease and really start to get to the bottom of, you know, why tailoring therapy is important and, to, to use a simple uh, metaphor, you know, why one size doesn't fit all. Mm -hmm. Right. So, sorry to interrupt your results. Oh, no, not at all, Jen. That's exactly the sort of, you know, please, as I say, feel free to chime in. So, so we were very pleased to, uh, I want to acknowledge, actually, we had a very good steering committee led by um, colleagues from both France and the United States, and then we had a uh, data safety monitoring committee as well that was also international, and it was very kind of you to mention the Kyle Award because actually one of the chairs of the DSMC was, in fact, no less than Dr. Bob Kyle, and the other chair was a wonderful uh, leading myelin specialist, Dr. Jean Bladet um, from Spain. But in any event, they also had some very good statisticians on the, in the group, and that meant we had really good input from our DSMC guiding us um, in very thoughtfully about the trial. And they required us to sort of keep going with the analysis until we had what we call full information, which gave us maturity of information in any estimates that we then derived. The important other piece is that our French partners, with one year of maintenance, had, had to call their results um, in 2016. Now, the French won a remarkable study group called the Intergroup Francophone Myelome. And in that setting, it's called the IFM. Uh, the only way to get access for most French myeloma patients to treatments is to participate in the IFM. That means that they enrolled very quickly to this study in France because obviously for most ordinary French folks, you, you couldn't get into the RBD-based treatment unless you participated in the trial. Um, this allowed them to move very quickly. I must say, frankly, with, with, and with enormous affection and respect for my French partners, I much prefer the American model where patients really have choices um, but the bottom line is that in France, if you need access, for most people, participation in the IFM is very vital. The good news is that the IFM provides such high standards of care and exceptional options, so, so it, it's a win-win. But, but again, because of that, the IFM enrolled very quickly. We enrolled more slowly, but over time. Um, and then they were able to report earlier because, as we learned, the reason probably for that was because lenalidomide maintenance was only for one year by um, the, the direction of their regulators. In any event, what they showed was that um, transplant generated a, a progression-free survival benefit of about one year over standard, you know, of RBD alone, and with using in the French study um, delayed transplant in about 80% of patients, there was absolutely no difference in survival at eight years of follow-up between delayed transplant and early transplant. Um, what they also showed was that if you achieved MRD negativity, that was very helpful. So our French data were very, very helpful. Um, our data, however, came out in a very fascinatingly and very different ways. Um, and this, of course, points to the difference in maintenance. Um, first of all, we allowed lenalidomide to be used until um, progression and or intolerance. And we were so in pleased to see our transplant arm generate the best progression-free survival we had yet seen um, and this was substantially better than what was seen with the French patients who received an early transplant, almost improved it by almost two years. 
where the median progression-free survival was 67 months. So a really impressive result for the early transplant arm. Very interestingly, for our RBD alone arm, we also saw the best results for that without transplant, with a gain of about one year versus the two years um, seen for the early transplant arm at about 48 months. So this was really fascinating because obviously there was a difference in favor um, of the transplant arm in progression-free survival uh, of around 21 months, which was great mm -hmm. um, and obviously highly statistically significant. So clearly the primary endpoint of the trial was made, meant, meant, met, which was that early transplant provided progression-free survival benefit. But what was so interesting, and this is the key finding in my opinion, um, with median survival over 76 months, in fact now well over 80 months and beyond, um, the survivorship between RVD alone and RVD plus early transplant was exactly the same uh, at 80%. So great results for both arms, um, but no difference in overall survival if you do early versus delayed approaches. And what was so interesting as well, Penny, was that um, the um, use of delayed transplant in the RVD alone arm was actually just 28%. 72% of patients received other strategies, new treatments, and yet, at least so far, the survival looks to be identical. So this was incredibly important because what it meant is that patients really have choices on the one hand, and on the other hand, we saw the best progression-free survival with both approaches that we'd seen in this setting, but the progression-free survival benefit to early transplant was really quite striking. That's so fascinating. And now we have so many other therapies that you're working on um, with, you know, these immunotherapies and things like that. So for newly diagnosed patients uh, with these results, do you suggest them going to early transplant? Uh, or was there, were there any subgroups inside of that trial that, that you realized were going to perform better with, trans yeah. with an early transplant? Yeah, I, I think I think you lead to a very important point, Jenny. I think you know before diving into that in a bit more detail, it's probably well worth sharing with our audience some of the the good things we saw, but also some of the challenges. For the early mm -hmm. transplant group, clearly it was a more toxic approach. Um, we saw um, a, a significant amount more toxicity with the early transplant. Um, uh, fortunately, all expected, but nonetheless uh, significant. We also saw we'd incorporated quality of life, and we showed that quality of life for early transplant took a highly significant drop during the transplant procedure that lasted several months, in fact. But the good news was that it recovered really nicely, and over time, the, the uh, quality of life estimates between RBD alone and RBD early transplant were identical. Uh, and there was, in mm -hmm. fact, even some evidence of a rebound effect uh, post-transplant, which might reflect the fact that, you know, patients really didn't feel at all well during the transplant, but rebounded nicely to feeling that much better post. But I, I think that's an important thing for patients to remember, because I think as providers, we can sometimes, you know, you know gloss over some of the tolerability issues and, and forget that they, from a quality of life point of view, these things really matter. So, so I, think, I think that's an important caveat. The other challenge that we unearthed was the, the secondary malignancy story. The second cancers um, were equivalent in both arms overall, but the rates of hematologic cancer were higher for the early transplant group, and in particular for AML-MDS, which is a well-recognized uh, risk to high-dose melphalan because of its genotoxicity, um, but because of the uniqueness of melphalan, it's obviously an incredibly important drug, but its downside is that it's genotoxic, uh, or, or mutagenic is the term. As a result of that, we saw 10 cases of AML-MDS in the early transplant arm versus none in the delayed transplant arm or RBD alone arm. So this was actually statistically significant, as you can imagine. The numbers were small, so that's the good news. Mm -hmm. But this was a, 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 you know, had a p-value of 0 0.002, so it was an important finding. So I think that you know when you think of toxicity, you think of quality of life, and you think of um, of this secondary malignancy challenge. I think these are important cautions. But having said that, still this PFS advantage that's so substantial is is so impressive. Now then, the next question that arises um, from from all of that, of course, um, in in that context, uh, uh, Jen, is it, 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 something of the following, which is you know what about responses? 
what we saw was actually very uh, interesting. We saw that if you got really high-quality responses with either arm, you did just as well as each other. So what we showed, at least so far, is that if you achieved MRD negativity on RVD alone, your progression-free survival was, was the same. If you achieved um, complete response, actually, um, the outcomes were very similar. Um, partial response or less than complete response was a little bit less, less clear. In fact, clearly the transplant did better if you only achieved the PR. And the MRD-positive patients did do better with a transplant versus those who were negative. But what was very interesting is that the MRD-negative patients or those patients with very high-quality response appeared to do, do just as well however they got there. So that these are sort of important considerations as we go forward. And I think the, um, the, the, the critical point to your question, Jen, about you know, um, what do you recommend is that it can be highly tailored. Because I think the important mm -hmm. point to share for the audience now is that we've got, you know, we designed this trial in 2008. Um, we now have RBD Dara, we have KRD Dara, we have RBD Isotuximab, right. we have KRD Isotuximab, and the MRD rates from these platforms without transplant are as high as 70 or 80%. So with those kind of data, how to position transplant has moved into, an, into yet another question, um, given that kind of data. But still, um, the determination trial is incredibly helpful, I think, because it gives you clues as to who right. may need a transplant early and who, in fact, you can afford to wait and see, given both the pluses and minuses of the high-dose melphalan. Right, and, and, you know, when you think about strategy from a patient perspective, you're thinking, well, if the overall survival might be the same, but if I can get um, better progression-free survival and I don't have to worry about retreatment for a while, and let's say I have a high-risk feature and I'm still MRD positive after that first induction therapy, then maybe that's the right move for me um, just to get out so everything can get through these clinical trials and then I might have be able to take advantage of another therapy um, once I relapse, you know, at that point. But my, my relapse time frame is just longer, um, or I, I have a longer period of time until I relapse. But if yeah. not, you know, and I'm getting MRD negative because I did a quad therapy now up front with RVD, um, as the backbone, then, you know, maybe that's my strategy. So I don't know. This is the reason that I think all patients should go see a myeloma specialist <laughs> because of this very uh, this very reason. It's, it's a lot of strategy, and I think you are uniquely qualified to help with that, determine that initial, especially initial strategy. Well, that's so kind, uh, Jenny, and I would 100% agree with you that strategic thinking now, thank God, for myeloma is now the way to go because, yeah, honestly, 20, yeah. 30 years ago, it was purely tactical. You know, we, we had median survivals of two to three years in non-transplant-eligible patients, median survivals in transplant-eligible younger patients for the best three to five years. Those are where you have to be tactical. You just want to throw everything at the disease because you've got nothing to lose. Now we can be far more tailored, and as you put it so nicely, far more strategic. So I think you summarized it beautifully, Jen. I think clearly transplant has a role. I mean, for those high-risk patients who are not responding well and you've got to side to reduce and target stemness, you know, so, so much the better. However, there are substantial numbers of patients who don't fall into that category. And again, if high-dose melphalan was, was without side effects and without long-term consequences, I would, you know, that we wouldn't be having this conversation, but the problem is that high-dose melphalan, I think, you know, particularly speaking for myself as someone who had the privilege of working with some of the founders of high-dose melphalan, not least of which Dr., sorry, Professor Tim McElwain at the Marsden, and being a transplanter myself, you know, for many years, I would say that it is a double-edged sword. You know, it, it is mm -hmm. a drug which provides tremendous benefit by targeting stemness, but at the same time, its side effect profile is real. And I think what's particularly important for, the, for us as investigators to understand is why do we see such a tremendous PFS benefit, which I so agree is a bridge to next steps. But we also have to ask ourselves a key question. Why is there no major over, or, or no obvious overall survival gain? Now, it may be that we don't have a long enough follow-up gen and that is possibly mm -hmm. true, but it's impossible. It, it, it obviously will know over the next several years. But the survival curves do look very stable. 
my statisticians, who are, are, are really brilliant leaders in the field, uh, Dr. E.D. Weller and Dr. Susanna Jacobus, uh, as well as our statistical oversight from, uh, from, from, from the DSMC. And the curves do appear very stable. Now, that doesn't mean to say they can't change. They may well do. We don't know. But we're, you know, we're, we're a mature follow-up. And I'm very reminded of the French data where at eight years, median follow-up, they're also seeing no difference. Although there, of course, the critical thing is that transplant was used in 80% of the patients for salvage. So there you can simply say, well, it's the transplant, you know, leveling the playing field. I would say in our data, it's almost the opposite, right? I mean, 28% got transplant, 72% got novel treatments. And in those novel treatments, clearly there's benefit because otherwise we wouldn't see the survival be the same. So that's led us to dig even harder and say, well, you know, is there a downside to the melphalan that we don't really understand? And what we've unearthed is something very important, which is that because melphalan is mutagenic to stem cells, Unfortunately, if there are surviving myeloma cells, um, they can also be stirred up genetically by the melphalan. And so there is mutagenic, mutagenicity, I should say, to the melphalan itself. Now, we, we encounter that all the time in, in, in treatments. You know, many of our drugs are, are DNA damaging or turbulent to the DNA. And, and the question is, what does that do? What we found is, uh, from our French partners, is that we can magnify the mutagenic or the mutational burden in the surviving myeloma by up to fourfold with melphalan versus not without it. And why that's so important is because we're trying to better understand the consequences of this. Now, on the plus side is that if you make a cancer more genetically unstable and increase you know, the genetic mutations within it, sometimes the immune response can be better at detecting this and eliminating it. And this may be why we definitely see some patients who clearly get tremendous benefit from, from transplant. Conversely, however, and as we know, unfortunately, only too well from myeloma, it is truly multiple myeloma, and there are so many different aspects of the pathobiology in each individual patient and across patients. If there's no big survival uh, advantage with such a big PFS gain, my biostatisticians have told me clearly that that suggests there may be competing risk. And so we're trying to better understand what that means. You know, are there patients who clearly were stirring up their genetic pot of their myeloma and they may actually mm-hmm. not benefit from high-dose melphalan to the same extent as others who really might? And, and Jen, you touched on this beautifully because you said, you know, are there subgroups in whom we saw benefit versus not? And we did do a comprehensive subgroup uh, analysis, but this was exploratory. It was not powered to be definitive. That would have taken a a study twice the size. Um, But what we did learn was some fascinating things, that first and foremost, almost all the subgroups got some PFS benefit (coughs) from early transplant that we looked at, but certain groups did did not, and or it was very much close to the median of one, as we call it. And very interestingly, Mm -hmm. we saw there that certain patient groups got more benefit than others. And again, these are hypothesis generating versus others. We found that certain um, uh, genetic subgroups seem to do better and others less so. For example, if you had 17P disease, the amount of <coughs> benefit from the high-dose melphalan was surprisingly not what we expected. Conversely, if you had translocation 414 in your genetic makeup, um, <coughs> we saw that the PFS uh, difference was really quite impressive. And this correlated very nicely with IgA. But 17P really didn't. It came back to the towards the middle. So we have to be careful how we make sense of that, because what it tells you is that one high-risk patient is not the same as another. And then we saw fascinating right. other that, you know, if you had very high body mass index, you know, transplant may not be the right choice for you. But if you were, sort of, excuse the term, Lance Armstrong, um, you know, you, your transplant <laughs> seemed to do quite well. Um, Now, very interestingly, in terms of other uh, uh, patient subgroups, we had also identified a few other fascinating features, which may point also to differences in pathobiology. We touched earlier on on our really gratifying uh, participation of African-American patients. What we saw there, which was remarkable, actually, was that um, amongst African-Americans, the benefit of transplant was much more limited in terms of PFS. In fact, their hazard ratio was just, just, just above one. 
So it would tell you that even, the, you know, it tells you so much about the biology of myeloma that it, that it really is different and it varies from patient to patient. And we have to think about, I guess it, I don't want to sound so too sort of, uh, you know, um, metaphorical, but it really does bring us back to what I said earlier, which is that one, one size clearly does not fit all. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I have a, a general question, too, because we've been looking at our health tree um, data as well, and we're noticing that when patients are relapsing and, um, well, when they show indication of relapse, so an official relapse is this 0.5 of your M protein, right? But we're seeing physicians treat at like 0.1, 0.2. Our average is like 0.36. So um, when you're talking about genetic instability, um, does the earlier treatment, like, and I've had one myeloma specialist tell me, you know, a third of patients, their M protein will go up and then it will um, go back down. And another third of patients, it'll go up and it'll stay. And another third of patients, it'll go up and keep going up. So you want to treat those patients because they're obviously relapsing. But when you talk about genomic instability in the transplant, um, when you see these patients, now you have very long-term follow-up data, for these 72% of patients who did alternative therapies and not a salvage transplant, um, do you see the same thing? Like the more treatment we get as patients, the more mutational burden we're getting regardless of the therapy? Because we're kind of, it's kind of concerning. Maybe everyone's treating too early. And um, Anyway, I just kind of want to get your thoughts on that. It's kind of a side question. No, 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 Jenny, I would like, as always, your questions are are spot on, and I would argue it's actually not a side question, it's a central question. I think the the bottom line is that we have to remember uh, um, that um, basically um, we um, have um, a a really key set of issues to to consider. One, that it's the nature of um, treatment, uh, and that's important. Uh, and basically, um, the um, you know uh, it, 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 it's it's really important to to understand this. Uh, um, you know, um, uh, basically, um, it's 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 a couple of things to share here. That there are certain very genotoxic therapies, um, and that at the same time, um, these genotoxic therapies. Um, uh, are, um, uh, are, are perhaps more genotoxic than others. Um, and obviously alkylation remains a very important part of what we do. Um, and I think it's important to, to, to share that. Uh, and I think that um, the other piece of this is that um, there are Im- immune treatments where this genotoxicity may be far less. So, so mm-hmm. I think your question is really central. But I also want to emphasize that I don't want patients to think, oh, my goodness, you know, alkylation is bad. It, it isn't. It's absolutely essential for targeting stemness. Um, the question is, you know, how do, we, how do we best do that? And I guess the question is also that different patients have different vulnerabilities. So to your point, um, treatment when it's needed is needed. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that it's, uh, it, 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 it's very important to think of it in that regard. Um, and I, I, I do think that... Um, uh, you know, it's 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 um, it, it's it's basically uh, a very important to, to to think of it in these terms because um, you know at the same time um, uh, you know we have choices and I think I think that's the critical point, Jen, that we have lots of choices and in that context we have um, you know uh, um, a, a an opportunity to uh, to then tailor treatment to each individual patient. So I, I think. I would argue alkylation is a key part of myeloma management. It absolutely is. Cyclophosphamide, melphalan, and, of course, the exciting new um, peptide drug conjugate, melflufen. Um, These are critical drugs, in my opinion. I think at the same time, using them sensibly in a way that doesn't magnify um, risk uh, and optimizes benefit makes a great deal of sense. And, you know, the melflufen experience is one very good example of that, Jen, where using melflufen immediately after a transplant has failed was not helpful, in my opinion. That is not a smart move, and it showed it in the OCEAN trial. Whereas, however, mm-hmm. using it in patients where um, they hadn't been exposed to lots of chemotherapy, it, it performed extremely well. 
so so I think I think the the way I'd look at it is um, we've got 15 new drugs and modalities we've got the opportunity to use them judiciously um, and we need to know how to use each tool in the toolbox you know more appropriately right and just while we're on the melfufen topic so <clears throat> that got um, put on hold because of that you know they found that what you just said patients who had had prior transplant or something it wasn't good for those patients but patients who had not it was very effective for them and now it just got European approval um, and so they might circle back around and try to do that in the United States again right well I, I, I think um, the uh, important message here is that um, it's 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 a question of looking at this intelligently, isn't it? And I think that there was um, some regulatory uh, uh, decisions made around the ocean trawl, which I completely understood, given some of the challenges in the regulatory environment that exists, particularly if an accelerated approval has been granted. I think the challenge here was understanding patient subgroups, and what is so important in the ocean trial is this was a head-to-head -head study, uh, um, and at the same time. Um, uh, in that context, um, uh, the important message here is um, that um, the um, uh, use of, of melflufen in patients uh, has the advantage of what's called a peptide drug conjugate, so it basically doesn't cause alopecia or mucositis. Um, it uh, also um, has the advantage of a once-a-month infusion, essentially. Um, because it delivers in an incredibly targeted way the Melphalan warhead, um, and so it delivers a very lethal dosing to the tumor. What's also so interesting about melflufen is that it actually appears to be very uniquely able, in the preclinical setting at least, to nail uh, 17P, which, which obviously traditional melphalan mm. struggles with. But one of the reasons for that may be it's, it's highly lipophilic. Uh, it's able to leverage an enzyme system called the aminopeptidases, which are uniquely overexpressed in myeloma. And that, that explains why, for example, it, it's on target, you know, so you don't get hair loss and mouth sores and so forth. In, in any event, it does cause cytopenia, so we have to be thoughtful about that. But to cut a long story short, in the OCEAN trial, the subgroup of patients in whom it probably is not wise to use it did, did un unfortunately skew some of the results in the statistical sense. And so as a result of that, the EMEA took a very different look at this data, uh, insisted on new data information. When they found all of that, they were very pleased, and then they recommended full approval. And I'm very pleased to report, it's my understanding, um, that the uh, FDA are taking a fresh look at this now, and I'm very hopeful they will, with the new data that's been generated around this central question of subgroups, uh, be able to bring that, what I consider this important drug um, forward. Um, not least of which, because of course it's so useful in the COVID era, right? It's an outpatient therapy, and it's particularly good in the elderly, and so on. So, so for lots of reasons, I'm very hopeful it'll 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 be there for our patients to benefit from. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Now, I know um, the time goes so quickly; it's crazy. Um, would you mind giving a broad overview of CAR T updates and maybe by specifics? It seemed like there was quite a bit of by specific antibody data at these mid-meetings. And then um, you may have other comments that you want to make about other immunotherapy-type things like cell mods or or other things. And I know you had um, a COVID study you wanted to share. So anyway, I'll let you do that in whatever order you want to do. But um, And we'll go to the top of the hour, but yeah, we have a lot to still talk about. <laughs> It's absolutely my pleasure. I mean, I think uh, essentially um, uh, the important messages from the, from the meetings of ASCO were really amazing. Um, but let me quickly run through the list for our listeners. Um, you, you mentioned, uh, I think we touched on this in the list, there was obviously the excitement of uh, some of the quadruplet data, right? DARA KRD as an induction treatment. Mm -hmm. There was, you know, really nice data. I mean, recognizing that carfilzomib is more powerful. Um, than bortezomib, generally speaking. We just have to be very careful about its vascular signal, but it's an incredible PI, and, um, you know, the DARA-KRD data seem to really support that. I was also very excited at the meetings, honestly, to see how, you know, belantamab mafodotin was, was delivering. Um, we've gotten a much better handle around the, um, around the ocular side effects. Um, that that uh, is being really something that was a challenge initially, but as we've gotten to be able to deliver the drug every uh, six uh, 
to nine to 12 weeks. Um, you know, it's, it's even there, it's been shown that you can, by giving it less frequently and especially in combination, generate really great outcomes with much, much less of a worry regarding toxicity. I think what to me personally has been so encouraging is that Belantamab mafodotin's keratopathy, this ocular side effect, is reversible. It is not something which leaves people with, um, in my experience, um, any kind of permanent issue. Um, and if you see it, you manage it, you reduce schedule and dose or increase interval, I'm sorry, and can consider reducing dose. And with really good um, eye care, um, I've been very pleased with how it's been performing and seen some great responses. And then dropping into the CAR-T space, well, I think you're absolutely right, Jen. Um, there's so much excitement around, um, you know, the Idacel, um Silta cell, the Abecema, as the Ida cells called, or the Karvitki, uh, is an amazing name for Silta cell. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure who names those. Abecema and Karvitki, it sounds like, uh, anyway, well, I, but no, I, Karvitki, yes, I've, I've got a, anyway, I, it, it, it's, it's uh, I guess it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it, if you think of it as CAR-T, but anyway, um, um, the data are obviously very promising. I think the challenge has been availability. CAR-Ts are very difficult to access commercially, in my experience, and the waiting list that we were told about at the meetings from real-world experiences, not just anecdote, but real-world studies, median wait time was six months, and that obviously is very sobering. I think... um, Going forward, we, we have to think about how to, as a, as, you know, as, a, as a healthcare community and the myeloma community and a healthcare system, how can we improve upon that? Um, and that's a challenge. I think what we've also realized is whilst we've seen wonderful results with both platforms, the duration of CAR-T benefit remains a major issue. Um, clearly, mm-hmm. it seems to be longer for Silta cell versus Idacel. But, you know, the data of around one year for Idacel and maybe two years or perhaps a little bit more for Siltacel, those are great data and very promising. And for selected patients, that's what we're seeing. But in real-world practice, we're also seeing some of these be much shorter. And I think we then need to think how can we, you know, again, level the playing field with these approaches. And I think in that context, there are a lot more exciting ones coming. Uh, and I think um, that that's important. I think also that um, the um, important thing also beyond that is um, that um, the uh, bispecifics, of course, are coming into the space and showing us, you know, a real off-the-shelf approach, although I want to emphasize there's off-the-shelf requiring hospitalization and there's off-the-shelf not requiring hospitalization, and I I think that's Mm -hmm. a distinction for providers and patients alike. Um, but I, I, do want, I do want to pivot back to um, the question around um, some of the CAR-T toxicities because I think we've been very impressed that Idacel may be generally better tolerated than Siltacel and a lot of the side effects are becoming easier to manage. But I think that we need to be very thoughtful about um, uh, the, the long-term consequences we're seeing. There is this real entity of this late late onset CNS toxicity um, seen uh, primarily with Siltacel, but there are now reports with Idacel as well. Um, and this 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 is something we need to better understand. Um, these are sort of Parkinsonian syndromes, which appear very mm-hmm. difficult to treat. And and speaking personally, I've I've, I've lost one of my patients to that recently. Um, and I, I think that it's it's. Um, it's really important to better understand these because obviously to have dramatic results in the majority of patients is great, but also, you know, if, if you happen to be one of the patients who runs into this long-term problem, that can be obviously devastating. So so I, I think we've got a little right. bit of work there in figuring these things out. And like a lot of things, um, the promise is there, but, but also we have to make sure that we're very um, cautious about the reality, if you will, uh, for want of a better term. And I think these best additional targets that you and I discussed before, Jen, are really important then because BCMA obviously is great, but there are other targets like you know, GPRC5D um, that, that, that may be another one that, that, that doesn't have this uh, CNS issue um, that may be equally, you know, maybe very exciting to pursue, just as an example. Um, so going back to the biospecifics, we've got 
you know, teclistamab, obviously on right on the cusp of approval. That's extremely exciting. The data presented at the meetings was superb, in my opinion. The one caution I have about the teclistamab data was the high rate of COVID-19 mortality. Um, that was clearly seen. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah, and the, the, the argument that it is somehow, you know, but just because of COVID-19 pandemia is a little bit strong because, you know, for example, we presented data from the Alliance at EHAR led by my colleague Peter Voorhees where during the pandemic we used this particular platform. It was Exazomib POMDEX versus POMDEX. And in this randomized phase two trial, Exazomib POMDEX performed very well and it was very safe and we didn't have a single COVID-19 death. And our PFS for Ixapomdex was 21 months almost, just shy of it. And the control group was seven and a half months. So, so you know, you've got a lovely oral platform, very convenient for the older folk, uh, frailer folks. And, and look at that PFS, you know, it's terrific. So, I mean, you know, my great, I want to especially acknowledge Pete, actually, because that was a, it was a long journey with that particular trial. But, but you, you see my point, Jen, that, that we need mm-hmm. to be very thoughtful about some of these toxicities because, whilst clearly the teclistamab data are in a much sicker population, so that has to be said, but nonetheless, you know, of 160 or so patients, at least 10 dying from COVID, we need to be able to think about that and take that on and, and, and prevent that from happening. Yeah, that, that just brings up a question because, you know, the bispecific antibodies seem to be very effective, but you're on them for a long period of time. So when you think about infection, how do you reduce that infection risk whether it's COVID or anything else, if um, if you're that, those are some of my thoughts about just you know be careful about how you're using it and how long do you need to use it? Yes, yes. Well, I think that's a great question, um, and I think uh, um, just uh, um, it, it's important to note. Uh, you know, we we've basically um, you know um, uh, it it it's 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 you know, really vital that we, we, we obviously you have to recognize, I'm afraid, that COVID-19 is, you know, as we've moved from pandemia to, to endemia for our myeloma community, um, COVID-19 remains a, 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 a significant challenge. And I think that um, we're working hard with new treatment strategies to minimize some of the endothelial components of the disease, which actually may be terribly important for, for example, the toxicities around the uh, the the bispecifics, you know, where the, the mortality seems to be high, but also um, there are obviously other therapeutic approaches that are very important in managing COVID-19, and infectious precautions or, or uh, uh, options like IVIG can be very very important in that same context. Um, and I think that um, the important uh, construct here is that you know. Um, as patients and families think about COVID, obviously we need to be continue to be vigilant. We've got great new tools in the toolbox, not only the boosters and the vaccines, but also neutralizing antibodies like Evusheld, which I recommend to my patients every six months. And then, of course, we've got Paxlovid as a therapy, which is oral and not easiest thing to do, actually, but you know, three tablets twice a day for five days, and sometimes you have to repeat it because you can get this rebound effect. And although you can get a very metallic taste from the pills, my patients, and they've also some patients have reported a little bit of diarrhea, it's generally okay. You just have to be very thoughtful about what other pills you're on at the same time. Um, but I, I do think we've gotten better at managing COVID, that is for sure. So what I, I don't want people thinking that the death rate from COVID means you shouldn't get a bispecific. I don't, I don't think that's true, Jen. I think, however, we need to think thoughtfully about the bispecifics as we recognize the challenge of, of, of COVID-19, but I do think it's manageable to your, to your, to your point. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes sense, and there are a lot of strategies. I know people are thinking about, do we use them before CAR-T, after CAR-T, and all that, and I'm sure that will play out when the data starts coming out and using them sequentially and you know, really shooting for more of a curative approach. Now, you wanted to talk about also cell mods, and I know those are in development. They And I don't know if they'll end up replacing, like, the Revlimids and the Pomalis of the world, but um, maybe you want to give us an update on that as well. Well, I'd, I'd be delighted, and thank you for asking for that, Jen, because the cell mods obviously were not necessarily front, middle, and center of um, the, the, the EHAR and ASCO meetings, but I'm very hopeful we'll be hearing more 
uh, in the myeloma research community at the meetings, certainly at IMS, and also um, at ASH. But in, in a nutshell, um, the ibertamide program <laughs> has um, continued to gain momentum, um, and that's been showing great results in combination. These are cerebral E3 ligase modulators, and just that much more potent than immunomodulatory drugs. And also, interesting enough, may be associated with less risk of second cancers, which I think is an important positive, preclinically anyway, um, a very important positive. Um, but preclinically, yeah. it does appear to be true. And if that's the case, that's great. Um, we, if that is the case clinically, we'll, we'll obviously have to see, but I, I'm, I'm very hopeful. The other cell mod is, of course, a CC92480. Uh, Ibertamide used to be called 220. Um, we've traditionally called CC92480 480, but it now has a rather catchy name of mesigidamide. Um, a bit oh, difficult, nice. that one. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a little tricky, okay. Jen, mesigidamide or mesigidamide. Um, but I call it mezi um, for short, just because I think that's okay. a little bit easier. So, so mezi um, is, is a very, very exciting new somewhat, in my opinion, because it's that much more potent than ibertamide. And mezi is also um, very active in extramedullary disease, which is such an important thing. And we kind of christened this in my team, you know, car tea in a pill, you know, that you can just take three weeks mm -hmm. on and one week off of, uh, of, um, <coughs> of, of mezi, especially in combination, and see <coughs> tremendous, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, see really good results with it. Um, but obviously that's in combination early days in highly carefully controlled clinical trials. So, you know, lots of work still to do, but we're very pleased, in, even in the triple-class uh, resistant and BCMA-exposed population, we're seeing really nice response rates. So the, the advantage, obviously, of a pill speaks for itself, and um, I think that's, uh, that's great. The other thing is we're, not, we're seeing a very low rate of, of COVID mortality as well, uh, to, to our earlier points. And do you think there will be a day where we see um, like a CAR-T up front or something like that and then use of some drug like this, like MEZI, as maintenance therapy or to, to maintain the response if, if that's kind of modulating the immune system and, and keeping it going after the myeloma? Yeah, no, I think, I think that uh, uh, that's a lovely thought. I think CAR-T coming up front is very exciting because obviously it will hopefully be much better tolerated earlier. Um, not that they're necessarily not tolerated, but, you know, sometimes they can be challenging, as we discussed. So moving CAR-T earlier, um, you know, could be very exciting for selected patients. Um, I, I have to say, though, I think as we think about CAR-T going earlier, you know, we touched earlier on the BCMA uh, target and some of the late onset neurological things we're seeing. I do think we have to be very thoughtful about that. And as long as that isn't, as long as that's a problem we can overcome, and it isn't a long-term sequelae that grows over time, I, I think that that will be uh, very exciting for bringing CAR T earlier. Um, I think your point's so well taken that cellular therapies working with a better immune system have real promise. I do think in that space. You know, we talked about natural killer cells, for example. That's another area of real promise um, coming in terms of the new pipeline. Um, and I think, can I see a see a, a, a world where we have some sort of cellular therapy which essentially mimics an autologous stem cell transplant and then follow it with, you know, a, an enhanced cell mod? I think that's very possible. I, I think strategically probably ibertamide will be the right right choice for that earlier slot with Mezzi perhaps kept, you know, because for, for, we also have to think strategically, Jen, as you and I have talked about mm -hmm. before, where, you know, we've got to have fallback positions in case our initial strategies um, uh, fail. And I think that um, that's, a, that's another reason why I'm so excited about some of the other um, agents that were profiled at the meetings. And one that you touched on, and I appreciate you mentioning it when we were having our conversations over the weekend, um, there are these so-called immunoconjugates, um, and the best example of that is TAC573. Uh, that's actually at our center being led by my colleague Omar Nadim. And, you know, we're very pleased with what we're seeing with that particular approach. So I think there are lots of different options available. The pipeline continues to be rich, and it allows us to sort of, you know, really optimize what I call, uh, you know, an individualized approach to patient care. Um, I did want to pivot back to a point, though, you meant about bringing CAR-T earlier and following it with cell mods. I think that's a really interesting idea and somewhere we're going for sure. 
I, I think the other part of this is this whole construct of targeting what we call stemness. And that, that again, because I don't in any way want to diminish mm. what we learned from determination. We saw, we saw in determination, you know, that Melfaland mattered. It does matter. So clearly, targeting stemness matters. And as we think intelligently about that in the future, that's going to be important too. Well, wow, Dr. Richardson, you've given us a lot to think about. We have um, so many options in myeloma, so it's a massive blessing to have this, this, quote, problem that we have about being able to decide. But I just want to reiterate that it's because of specialists like you who are doing these studies in all these different iterations to figure out what is the best therapy for each individual patient that we're coming to these conclusions. So I just I thank you so much for joining this call and um, for giving us an update. There's we could talk for probably three hours on this topic. I think. I, I think that's absolutely fabulous. Well, well, um, as always, Jen, it's truly my my privilege, and um, it's lovely to talk to you. And thank you for all your super questions, and, and above all, a big thank you to your audience. Um, and it's just as I say, a, a privilege to be part of the myeloma research community and. Uh, and you know to see the continued progress, and I, I really would just above all want to acknowledge um, everyone who's contributed to our research, and in particular as I think about the determination study, um, you know its its uh, its impact, and that's all because of everyone who's contributed. And I just wanted to close by by thanking everyone, and above all our patients and families. Well, thank you so much for leading out in the field of my multiple myeloma. We're just so appreciative of everything you do. So thank you. I um, I, I can't, uh, yeah, I, I get kind of emotional when I think about all the work and the effort that, um, you know, you're dedicating your life to help us. So we just greatly thank you. Appreciate it very much. Jen, Jen please, it's the least, it's, it truly is a privilege and an honor, and I, I say that from with the deepest of sincerity because I just realize how, how incredibly challenging everything is for our patients and, and for you know, on the one hand, I'm so lucky to see some of my patients do incredibly well, but I'm also so humbled when I see some of my patients really and patients I, you know, consult for or, or provide yeah. input, and they see them run into real difficulties even within two to three years of their diagnosis. And and you just realize that uh, myeloma is one hell of a challenge. There's no question about that. And um, it's it's uh, we've come a long way, but I, I so agree with you, Jen. We've got we've still got a long way to go. Yeah, well, thank you for continuing the fight. And thank you to our listeners um, for listening to the Health Street Podcast for Multiple Myeloma. We invite you to join us next time to learn more about what's happening in myeloma research and what it means for you.